Once you have a Bible, would you like to turn to the book of 1 Timothy and find chapter 3? This is in the New Testament, much further towards the back of your Bible than the front. We've been there on just a couple of occasions recently, a very abridged kind of mini-series, not even looking at the entire book, just landing on a few passages here and there. And uh, last time we looked at the passage at the beginning of 1 Timothy 3 on eldership or on being an overseer. And today we're going to focus our attention on deacons. Uh, So let's read together. And I'll tell you what, we'll we'll read from verse 1 just to get the flow. Maybe we'll read through to about verse 15 or so. Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Okay. So if you like, this is a very mini-series on biblical leadership. So like I say, we looked at uh, overseers or elders last time, looking at deacons uh, today. It's an important thing to consider. It's very important for Timothy uh, to consider, and that's why Paul was writing him this letter. If you remember uh, from previous times, Paul uh, is writing to his disciple, Timothy, who has gone to Ephesus, uh, a big church in Ephesus, a significant church, but a church that in recent times has hit crisis. Uh, And the crisis is this. They would seem to have forgotten the grace of God and therefore the teaching, whoever it's coming from, whether it's coming from the elders or whether it's coming from from other kind of self-appointed leaders in some way, the teaching is flavoured with law rather than grace. So very interesting what Uh, Wendy brought earlier on about the the possibility, even those of us who are familiar with the grace of God, to to kind of slip back into a legalistic mindset and what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be part of a church uh, together. It can become, in our thinking at least, and in what we do and how we integrate, uh, how we relate with one another, it can be a place of just, just rules, ought tos, shoulds, pressure. And kind of heaviness coming with it. So we've seen this crisis described in chapter 1, verse 3. Paul writes, As I urge you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines 
uh, any longer. And verse 7 gives us a flavor of that. Like I've already said, they, they want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. And then some weeks ago, we looked at Paul's example. Paul saying, look, the grace of the Lord was poured out on me abundantly. He's saying, I've been made an, an example of God's grace. And that's how this wonderful relationship with Jesus begins. And that's how a church is to be rooted and established and built together. So when he's saying at the end of chapter 3, you know, I'm writing this to you, I'd love to come. And I'm hoping to be able to come. But if I'm delayed, if I'm not able to make it, I want you to know kind of what's important. Things have gone awry. If I'm delayed, this is how you should know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. It's kind of saying that the community of God's people should be reflecting the message that we are to share. The message of Jesus should be reflected in how we are and how we relate with one another. And if there's a mismatch, church life gets ugly and people might end up saying, well, I kind of like the message, I kind of like Jesus, but I just don't like the church. Um, it doesn't seem to match. And, and Paul is saying it needs to match. Look at what the grace of God did in my life. Right, we've got to relay a foundation and therefore if we want a healthy church, we need healthy Leaders, but we might be thinking at this point, okay, a couple of weeks ago we were kind of getting our head around what uh, overseers are about, who they are, what task they have, uh, and so on. But we might be looking now and thinking, what on earth is a deacon? It's a bit of a bit of a mystery. Uh, if you've not been saved for very long, or you've not kind of been, you've not grown up in a church at all, you might think, well, I've, I've not yet heard of one of those. What is a deacon? If you have been saved for some time, you may have experience in other churches or other uh, churches, churches that are a part of a denomination where they would have had deacons. But I think, well, it might have just left you with a slightly strange uh, image. Could be a slightly quaint figure, someone with strange clothing, uh, conducting religious ceremonies in a hushed atmosphere, wafting incense or something. Or the, the bunch of serious-looking people that you have to kind of run the gauntlet to get out of the church building at the end of the meeting. Uh, perhaps you know, they'll, they'll thrust a hand at you and you go, oh, okay, uh, shake the hand. Um, it could appear perhaps a totally separate sphere of leadership in local church. In other words, oh, kind of the church might have pastors. They kind of teach and, and lead and, and speak. And there are deacons. But actually the impression we get is they think very differently on key issues. And they don't get on very well. But the church has got to have deacons, clearly. So there can be confusion. And so we're going to kind of take a... a a particular look at them today, we'll, we'll touch on the passage. There are some similarities with what we've looked at before, so we might not go into the same depth uh, in terms of looking at character traits and so on, because there's so much similarity. But really we need to land on what, what is a deacon, or what are examples of a deacon. And first I want to look at Jesus. Isn't it amazing that whatever our position in life, whatever life involves, you can bet Jesus is our prime example. He's our prime inspiration. And so we actually see in Scripture 
that Jesus is our deacon. Hmm? Why do I say that? Because the word deacon can sound so religious and formal, it's actually getting at something a lot more simple yet still profound. Jesus' servants. And we see that, we refer to it on another occasion, but look with me, if you will, in the book of Matthew, slightly earlier on in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 20. There's this point, as Jesus comes to Jerusalem, knowing that he's going to be crucified, he's going to be killed by the religious leaders, it comes across as an argument that's taking place, a discussion or a request comes to him uh, from a couple of his disciples. We, Now that you're about to come into your kingdom, though you clearly don't understand what that involves yet, we would like one of us to be on your right and one of us to be on your left. You've, you've kind of developed this close group of, of 12 disciples and we're looking forward to, to coming into some, uh, some authority and some, uh, some, some positions of, of power in your new kingdom. So pick us. And, uh, and, and so they have that conversation. And then the, t- the rest of the group hear about that. So in Matthew 20, verse 24. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your deacon. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. He's kind of saying, letting down, saying a principle of what his kingdom is like. People might be aspiring to greatness, but it's in a completely different way. Don't do it the way the world does it. Don't follow the pattern you see in the world of striving to be above in order to kind of squash down others, gaining security for oneself at the expense of people that you lord it over. And exercise authority uh, over. Jesus says, well, not so with you. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. That's a principle for the whole kingdom that Jesus is establishing. And he demonstrates it amazingly himself. I think verse 28 are possibly some of the most profound words we're reading in scripture. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus became our servant. This is an utterly remarkable statement. Not just something that he said, but something that he demonstrated by his actions. Many of us may be familiar with John chapter 13. Let's turn to John chapter 13. See an example of, of Jesus demonstrating himself taking on the nature fully of a servant. It says there, it was just before the Passover feast in verse 1. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Wow. What's he about to do to demonstrate the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Wow. 
What's Jesus going to do? Jesus knows the Father had put all things under his power. He'd come from God and was returning to God. He's going to demonstrate the full extent of his love. What's coming next? How is he going to do this? Surely something majestic and awesome and inspiring. And, oh, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. This is no ornate religious ceremony. This was the task that the lowest of domestic slaves would have been expected to perform. The disciples were basically clean, but in the days of open-toed sandals being fashionable, um, minus socks, then walking around on dusty streets in Palestine, um, one's feet would get really, really grubby. And so they're just coming in for this special Passover meal, this special time with, with their master, and the disciples have got dirty feet. And there's, there's, there's no domestic slave. There's no one around who's going to do that. And you could just imagine perhaps kind of awkward silence. This is the elephant in the room. No one's really talking about it. We're all just kind of sitting down starting the meal, but our feet stink. And we've just got to... Jesus, there's no servant here. There's, there's no one uh, to do it. Notice that no one offered... No disciple was saying, Jesus, this time is so precious to have you, a master, rabbi, teacher. Uh, we're here to serve you, so um, this is not typically what I would do, but I, I, I'll, I'll do that. I'll serve. No one was doing it, just awkwardness. And then knowing who he was, where he'd come from, where he was going, he stooped down he took the task that was reserved for nobodies and so yes Jesus is the king about to come into his kingdom he is the master teaching his students he's the he's soon to be the prisoner heading to execution you can think he's got he's got other things on his mind he's got a a higher calling he's got great gifts to be used in wonderful ways befitting his his position as the son of God or the son of man as he goes on to say but there's no hint of reluctance there's no hint that he thinks he shouldn't be doing this it's not pretense it's not play acting he graciously stoops down and says this is appropriate for me to do I'm your king I'm your master but I'm going to wash your feet Jesus came to serve Meet the servant king. The disciples didn't understand. Jesus says that himself. You don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. They're just kind of flabbergasted. Just Again, there's, there's silence in the room apart from Peter who pipes up. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Surely not. You don't understand. You don't realize what I'm doing, but later you will understand. And actually later they would understand. It's perhaps the significance of it lost on them 
then. But we see Jesus is our deacon. But when we see the, the church growing, we see right at the outset and the heart of it, this is a community of deacons. This is a community of people who are serving one another. When uh, apostles uh, write letters and they're introducing themselves, how do they often say, Paul, when he's writing to the Philippians, he says, we're, we're servants of Christ. We're each called to do the task that the king has assigned to us. So our calling is to serve. It's a great demonstration of the grace of God. Remember in Ephesus, the situation that Timothy's trying to deal with, the grace of God has got twisted, misunderstood, forgotten. And when that happens in the church, there's not a great desire to serve one another. It's kind of just friction. It's kind of one-upmanship. Let one of us be on your right and one of us be on your left. Quick, we want to get in before anyone else does. That's the, that can be the prevailing attitude. I, I give thanks that I believe this church is a community of servants. And I believe that is the case because a foundation of grace was laid amongst us. So there are people serving in any number of ways. Uh, before the vast majority of us arrived at the building, you can bet that stewards were here. Uh, they wear grey t-shirts. They sometimes have these interesting earpieces through which they can talk and give interesting messages, like code red, uh, spilt coffee, or something. There might be other things that get said. But they are here early, unlocking this building. They'll be locking it up later after we've all gone, and... They're making sure that it's ready for us to use. We came in the building and there were people with a different colour t-shirt on, probably marked welcome, just greeting us as we came in. Maybe if you're here for the first time, they might have given you a copy of the church uh, magazine. There are some other servants who design, write, proofread, print and staple the magazine. Just serving. There are musicians and people on PA and on the laptop at the back making sure that words do come up on the screen. Uh, all giving their time before we arrived and after we've gone to set that up and make it happen. Stuff that's not necessarily the spotlight isn't necessarily put on. People who have already started brewing coffee that is ready for us to enjoy in just a few more uh, minutes. Uh, people giving their time to lead Kids Corps and Fusion uh, and student work, just wanting to serve, wanting to give their time and their energy and their effort and their encouragement to other people. Church is to be a, a community which strikes the world as strange because it's not me-centered. It's a company of people who love to put the focus on, on others, others' interests, a desire to serve. This is a church that is served by trustees, administrators, a treasurer, just making sure that actually from the point of view of charity law, we are legit. And I think last time we all checked, we were, uh, just about. Core group leaders, giving up their time, opening up their homes, Whatever's going on in their lives, making time and space to gather others and say, let's just, let's worship God together. Let's get into the word of God together. 
Let's encourage one another. Let's pray for one another. Yet you can have a cup of tea. You can even have decaf Earl Grey with a hint of soya milk and three grains of granulated sugar. All because they're eager to serve. I think they're well within your rights just to say it's tea or coffee. Like it or lump it. Um, But there's a, a desire to serve. And that's not always easy, but week by week, seeking to serve one another. Um, But in a sense, we've not even started yet. Those are just identifiable roles in which some people are serving in the life of this church. But this attitude of serving, of being deacons together one with another, it's not just about having a badge or having a role. Well, I'm serving uh, because I'm part of this particular team. Actually, there are those of us uh, particularly gifted at serving in ways that don't have a, a label, don't have a badge. There's just a general attitude of heart, seeing ways to bless and encourage others. It's the people who are just adept at just noticing, as we all, many of us sit down, in a big patch of grass just beyond the cafe um, in Ancliffe Park later on, just notice that actually there'll be some people around who, for whom this isn't, this isn't typical. I'm not familiar with this. We're thinking, or many of us will be thinking, it's the last Sunday um, of the month in Sheffield with City Church during the summer. Of course, there is a picnic in Ancliffe Park. This is what we do. Um, but for some others, it's like, well, I'm not familiar with this. I don't know loads of people here. And you see, uh, people that are just, I'm serving. And I, I'm just going to bring them in to what I'm involved with. Open up my own hamper. Um, and just share and serve. People who've got an eye out to, uh, to welcome those who are kind of still getting their bearings. And so many other ways besides. Just, it's a blessing to serve. I say it's a blessing to be a part of a church that serves. And Galatians 5, verse 13, uh, Paul writes to that church, as you, my brothers, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The Galatians, is an, they were another group uh, of believers who had forgotten the wonder of the gospel. They'd forgotten the grace of God. Maybe they were slipping back into that legalistic mindset. Therefore, there's no kind of joyful atmosphere of serving one another in love for us to say, you know, the entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. It's the kind of atmosphere that develops when people have forgotten the gospel, and perhaps forgotten what Jesus is like. Let's not take our eyes off Jesus. Let's not take our minds off of the gospel. Other attitudes can start to creep in. I shouldn't have to put up with this, or I shouldn't have to put up with them. Kind of general wariness or suspicion of other people's motives. Yeah, well, they're only doing that um, so that they get recognized, and, and maybe at the next family night they'll get picked out, and we'll all have to applaud them. Brilliant. What about... So I'm, that's not me. Uh, <laughs> kind of opening up my heart, I hope. Um, those are just the attitudes 
that can creep in. A general attitude of serving replaced with, what about me? Church isn't supporting me very well. Or perhaps I am serving, but no one seems to notice. I should have a bit more recognition. I've not been mentioned from the front. I don't think particularly that's the case, but we have to be on guard. And if it is ever the case, it's, oh dear. Time to lay down the grace of God again. I remember having a conversation with a Christian couple once. They were just relaying some of their experiences in previous churches. They're not a member of this church, by the way, otherwise I wouldn't share this story. Um, and we are just talking about some of the stuff they were talking about, some challenges they, that they'd faced previously in uh, amongst the youth of the church. Perhaps some moral issues had cropped up. And their way of kind of dealing that, they said to me afterwards, was what we realised we had to do is we had to lay down the law. We had to kind of read the right, we had to lay down the law. I think, what an unchristian phrase, really. That's foreign to the new, new covenant, surely. We never lay down the law in that sense we lay down grace. Now that leads us somewhere. It doesn't lead us to stay in sin. It, it leads us to admire Jesus, see all that he's done for, for us, see how he has already served us. And it's not our whole case of trying to serve him uh, in a way of paying him back by installments for this amazing gift he's already given. Oh, how am I going to manage? How are we going to do this? Oh, just heavy duty law-bound, rule-based, ugly Christianity. It's no, I've, I've seen him again and I've been united with him in his death. That means I've died to my old life. I've been forgiven of all my sin. I've been given a brand new identity. It's like I have been lifted up. I've been cleansed and lifted up. Now I've got an identity I could never have got for myself. I've got a future and a destiny I could never have paid for. It's wonderful free gift of grace. And with, a, with eyes set on Jesus and an appreciation of, he's the son of man. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. And that many includes me. And I'm on the receiving end of all of these benefits as a result. Oh, and then it's a, it's a joy. We become more like him. Christians, little Christs. It's, it becomes who we are, not what we ought to do. It's the character that he's putting within us. Because Jesus is living in us by his spirit. So perhaps... In Ephesus, well, I think definitely in Ephesus, the culture got ugly. And uh, praise God, that's not the situation for us. Nevertheless, it's just so important that we don't ever trade the grace of God for something else. So what then of deacons? This specific group within the church. Uh, we, we've seen them here, uh, an identifiable group. In addition to overseers, there are deacons. You think, when on earth we're about to arrive at the passage? Well, here we go, just a little bit anyway. Um, we see in Philippians uh, 1, verse 1 as well, just in terms of the, Paul's introduction there as he writes to the church. He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. So there's some identifiable uh, group, not super saints, not 
other leaders to put on a, on a pedestal in that sense, but a distinct group within the church. We see that really in terms of uh, character, there are very similar qualifications or conditions, if you like, that we saw uh, for overseers. So those who were to be deacons or to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. As the list goes on, it builds up this picture again of, well, this just describes a Christ-like believer with a mature faith. They don't have responsibility to teach, as overseers do, but they are convinced of the same truths. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. Deep truths kind of sounds like a bit of a strange phrase, as if we're all aware of surface-level truths, um, but if you really want to progress in the Christian life, you've somehow got to uh, kind of dig under some mysteries, and if you're really special, God might reveal some deep, hidden things. He's tried to keep tucked away from riffraff, um, although not at all. It's just a way of saying... The, the, the wonderful truth of the gospel. Um, these, these deacons have got a firm grip on it. In other words, it's not just looking for people who can serve competently, hiring or firing people to do a job solely based on the skill set they have. Actually, it's about a united church having united Leaders who together are committed to the same gospel and seeing it bear more and more fruits. So, yeah, there'll be some levels of competence in different tasks that they might be performing, but they're on the same page. This isn't two kind of very separate spheres of leadership in the church having a scrap with each other to work out what to do. They are singing, as it were, from the same him sheep. Uh, in contrast to overseers, what we see is that men and women are involved uh, serving in these ways. At least I think that is um, the stronger interpretation of verse 11. In the same way their wives are to be women worthy of respect. It reads slightly oddly if it's referring to the wives of deacons in that we've not heard about the wives of overseers. So, so why, uh, why would that be here? I think he's saying in the, in the, in the same way. The women are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. So men and women involved in Romans 16 verse 1, uh, we see described there Phoebe, uh, someone who served in the church, or uh, your footnote might say, if you turn to it, a deaconess. So deacons focused on a specific area or need in the life of the church. We've got elders overseeing the whole church. I believe we've got deacons bearing significant weight of responsibility for specific areas of need. Let's just touch briefly on Acts chapter 6. We see in Acts 6 a church encountering growing pains. Whole numbers of people are being saved and added to the church. And when that happens dramatically, there can be growing pains. There's a a, a very different crisis that develops because uh, there's a complaint that arises 
um, that certain among the widows of that community were being overlooked in the distribution of food. Now, we've got to be careful with this passage. It talks about apostles and a group just known as the seven. It's not actually talking about elders and deacons. But we see here a a key time in the life of the the church. It says in verse 2, So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now is that the apostles just saying, this is beneath us? We are destined for higher things. Don't you understand the gifting uh, that God has entrusted with us? We're too important to wait on tables. I don't think it's saying that. It's saying that leaders have got limited capacity And the 12 apostles knew, particularly at that point, if we give up praying, studying and teaching the word of God, what on earth is going to happen to this community of believers that we're a part of? If the leader, if the elders, let's say now, coming into, back to 1 Timothy 3, if the elders of a church are not praying and are not giving themselves to the word of God, Where on earth will that church arrive next year, 10 years' time, in a generation's time? There's got to be a way in which churches can work out what to do. Perhaps even when a crisis hits, there's a problem, there's a complaint, there's something that's been overlooked. Yes. Now, what do we do next? That's a key time. And it's not a case for then... Dividing up into warring factions. The church is not looking after me or the church is not looking after them. It's a case of coming back together and saying, Lord, in our limitations, this has happened. Would you now help us to work out our next steps? And I'm believing that God will be doing something similar for us. This is just a hint, perhaps, that a healthy church can experience growing pains when some things are not working out quite right. If we experience that in the months or years ahead, let's walk through it with faith and then be prepared for solutions that might look a little bit like Acts chapter 6, or might look a little bit like 1 Timothy 3, verse 8 onwards for a little bit. It's not the case of trying to create a hierarchy and saying, well, there are, there are elders at the top, and the next tier down uh, are deacons, the next tier down after that might be core group leaders, and the next tier down after that, the next tier down are the people who wash feet. Um, as if the church is to be one great pyramid um, uh, with some strange organisational chart. It's more of a case of saying, no, we're a community of believers together. We are brothers and sisters seeking to serve one another. But you know what? We're just particularly going to recognise and lay hands on these individuals, men and women, at different times. They're not having the responsibility of overseeing the whole church, but we're recognising a particular gift 
a particular uh, God-given flair, if you like, to this particular area of church life, particular responsibility. So receive them, pray for them, honour them, not as, oh, drat, they got the better seats in the house. No, just a different variety of leader in the church of Jesus Christ. In Ephesus, they lost sight of grace and things went to pot. Our number one responsibility in the life of the church, in the best way we can, is to serve one another well. And to do that, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. You might kind of think, well, where is this message landing? What's the so what? Where, where do we go? How do we apply this? Is it just an exhortation to keep serving and doing your job? Well, Let's just look again. Maybe this is actually a reminder. Look again at how Christ and only Christ has served us. Look at the way in which he showed the full extent of his love. Washing the disciples' feet. Yeah, okay, we get it. We're supposed to do the same. Yeah, no, just keep looking. Keep looking at the one who said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Have you received what only Jesus can do in your life? I'm kind of reminded of those occasions where I've been driving the car, we've been going somewhere unfamiliar. If we had sat nav at the time, it's broken. Um, my map and my memory is a little bit hazy, but I have a responsibility of getting us to where we're going. And um, it is realised by others in the car that I'm not doing particularly well. Um, You're lost. We're lost. No, we're not lost. I'm just not sure of the way to go or where we are or how to get there. Um, Well, look, there's someone just over there. Why don't you ask for directions? (coughs) Never ask for directions. That is an acknowledgement of weakness and need. I may have those needs, but I don't want to acknowledge them right now. So I'm going to drive for another half a mile at least in who knows what direction and hope that I stumble across the right destination. Just because I wouldn't say, actually, I need someone else to serve me. How often do we go through life slipping back into a legalistic mindset where our culture says, You're successful if you're self-sufficient. If you need something or if you need somebody else, you're not self-sufficient and therefore you're not successful and you're less valuable in this society. Relationship with Jesus, Almighty God, begins like this. Lord Jesus, I need you to serve me. I need you to do what only you have and could do. As it were, I I needed you to cleanse me. I need you to wash me. I've been trudging around. I've got dirty feet. And I can't clean myself up. The gospel is a message of one who stooped down in order to lift us up. It's a message of someone who came to serve. Can you see the grace of God is absolutely vital? If we drift from a wonder of all that Jesus has done, 
we drift into law, we drift maybe into quarreling, in, into one-upmanship, a kind of anxious search for, oh, I'm, I am valuable, I am important, I, I, I've got a part to play. Well, well, yes, of course, because we all do in this community. So there might be, for some here, who, spiritually speaking, think, I, I know I'm grubby, I know I'm dirty, or I know I'm lost, and I know I don't know the way, but I'm not ready to ask for help yet. And I'm certainly not ready to come to Jesus and ask for it. Take another look. Come and see what he's like again. Allow him to do what only he can in your life. You might feel like Peter. You know, you, you can't wash my feet. Well, actually, Jesus didn't say, yeah, you're right. And he said, no, I, I, I'm going to do this. It's right for me to do. He is the king of heaven. He became for us our servant, our deacon. Now, this church is a wonderful community of deacons. But I'd say again, don't miss the grace of God. Don't miss the grace of God if you have just been trudging in some responsibility or task that now has become anything but cheerful. It would be ironic if the, the, the kind of application today was, right, down tools everyone, no one serve at all. Well, how would we be demonstrating that with Jesus' disciples? At the same time, in some areas and for some individuals, if it's got dry and wearisome, the grace of God says you can actually stop for a season, for a little while. Maybe there'll be other things that you're involved in serving, not stopping being a disciple of Jesus altogether, but we can start to get into the mindset of, I'm indispensable. I have to do this because no one else will. It's the whole church, but they haven't noticed that that needs to be done. So I suppose I'm going to have to do it, aren't I? And a kind of reluctance. Again, that's what kind of just comes up if we just lose sight of grace. If that's the case, better stop if it helps refocus than trudge on feeling resentful of thanks that isn't coming uh, or it's just wearisome at the moment. There's grace for that. Repent doesn't mean stop serving, but it might mean laying something down for a season before picking other things up again into the future. Like I say, my hope is that we will experience many growing pains uh, because of what God does amongst us. So in whatever way he calls us, it is time to believe God. Maybe there'll be times where we're adu- ad- ad- adapting to different structures. Who knows? Maybe we'll even have deacons uh, in the future that we lay hands on. But in the meantime, let's just continue to believe God, trust God, enjoy his grace, and enjoy serving one another. Amen? Amen. Let's worship God. Uh, I'll just pray before we do that.